This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Sponsored by Amazon, Audible, HostGator, Gamefly, and supporters of independent media like you. Welcome to the Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 50th episode of the podcast. We are halfway to 100, and that to me is really quite the accomplishment. So today's episode is sponsored by our latest members on humanistreport.com. Today we have Jerome Hove, who is a new member. We also have Whitney Douglas Fernandez, also a member, and Jacob Newton, a VIP member. And on Patreon, we have Matthew Sobel. So thank you to everyone who has decided to support the show. So long as you watch, that's all I care about. But for those of you who go the extra step, really, I mean, it means the world to me. If you'd like to support us, you can visit the links down below in the description box. So on today's episode, uh, let me just forewarn you, even though this is the 50th episode, it's a really shitty episode. Just turn away now. Click X. Don't watch because... We've got some really depressing and sad topics. I'll discuss FBI Director James Comey's testimony to Congress about Hillary Clinton's email investigation. And with respect to this case, I'll also introduce you to Brian Nishimura, who is a veteran who did nearly the same thing as Hillary Clinton, yet was prosecuted. And I'll also talk about the horrific chain of tragedies that occurred, uh, including Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, and the five police officers that were shot and killed in Dallas. Now, when it comes to the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton has embraced Bernie Sanders' free college tuition plan, and Bernie Sanders is set to endorse Hillary Clinton soon. So I'll talk about those things. Also, House Democrats booed Bernie Sanders, so I'll also cover that. And additionally, when it comes to third-party presidential candidates, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein are now suing to be included in the national debates. So all of these topics will be covered. You know, it's not... It's not the most cheery episode ever, and I'm really disappointed that, you know, we don't have more happy news to report about, but unfortunately, these are things that happened and that I have to talk about. Uh, I just feel they're really important and that I, I, I want to weigh in on them. So uh, hopefully you guys can enjoy the episode and take something away from it in spite of the fact that it's just downright gloomy. Um, so let's go ahead and jump right in. I'm going to go ahead and start out with the uh, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, and the police officer shooting first. So by now, everyone has heard about the horrific chain of tragedies that transpired throughout the week. The first one was Alton Sterling, who is a 37-year-old man from Louisiana who was shot and killed by police officers. The second was Philando Castile, who is a 32-year-old man who was shot and killed by a police officer. And to top it all off, we had five police officers in Dallas that were shot and killed and seven that were injured. So I'm going to talk about all of this uh, because I think this is, it's a really important topic to discuss. And if you go to social media, you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, you're going to see what I think is a false dichotomy. You're going to see people aligned with Black Lives Matter, and then you're going to see people aligned with Blue Lives Matter. Uh, and you don't have to take a side it's a false dichotomy because it doesn't exist. You can be against the violence in all cases. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the events that unfolded, which even though you guys already knew, I think that it's important to revisit it to give anyone context who doesn't know. So it started with Alton Sterling, and he was selling CDs outside of a convenience store to which he had permission from the owner to do so. And police officers in Louisiana received 
a uh, report saying someone was threatening people with a gun. Now, we have no idea if that actually was Alton Sterling. So what happened is there was police officers that arrived. They were trying to arrest him and he was resisting arrest and they ended up killing him. So I'm going to go ahead and show you the video of that. But first, I'll get to Philando Castile. So this is someone who was stopped because he had a broken taillight. So a police officer pulled him over and the police officer had asked for his ID, which was in his wallet, which was in a compartment in his car next to a gun, which he had a license for. So as he was reaching for his ID, he was telling the officer, uh, you know, I have a gun right here. I do have a license for it, uh, but I'm going to grab my ID. And what happened was as he reached for his ID, he was shot and killed by a police officer and his girlfriend live streamed it as he was dying. So here's the videos. Be warned, they are incredibly disturbing. pulled over for a busted tail light in the back and the police just he's 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 covered he they killed my boyfriend he's licensed he's carried to he's licensed to carry he was trying to get out his id and his wallet out his um pocket and he let the officer know that he was re he had a firearm and he was reaching for his wallet and the officer just shot him in his arm we're waiting for a back. I will, sir. No worries. I will. Fuck. He just shot his arm off. We got pulled yeah. over on Larpener. I told him not to reach for it. I told him to get his hand open. He had. You told him to get his ID, sir, and his driver's license. Oh my God! Please don't tell me he's dead. Please don't tell me my boyfriend just went like that. Keep your hands where they are, please. Yes, I will, sir. I'll keep my hands where they are. Please don't tell me this, Lord. Please, Jesus, don't tell me. Now, the officers that killed Alton were investigated five different times between the two of them within the span of seven years. So there's a history of instability, and we have reason to believe that they were unfit for duty. Now, also, when it comes to the issue with Philando Castile, his girlfriend said that uh, she was in the back of the cop car while other cops came and were consoling the cop who shot and killed her boyfriend and saying he's going to be okay, even though she just lost her boyfriend. Now, the attorney general in Louisiana announced that a civil rights investigation will be opened up over the death of Alton Sterling, and Obama stated that the Justice Department would be looking into the Philando Castile case now, because of the death of these two men, uh, there were protests that erupted throughout the country, uh, basically in every major city. And at one peaceful protest in Dallas, five police officers were sniped and seven others were injured, making it the deadliest incident for law enforcement since 9-11. Now, the suspect specifically targeted police officers. He said he wanted to kill white people and specifically wanted to kill uh, white police officers. Uh, and contrary to popular belief, he was not a part of Black Lives Matter. Now, there are a ton of people on the right who are trying to pin this on Black Lives Matter and saying, look, now they're a terrorist organization. They're doing violence against police officers. This is horrible. But 
they're really misinformed because if you actually look at the details, Black Lives Matter is not responsible for this. The protesters were peaceful and the police officers were there uh, supervising the protest, making sure it remained peaceful. They were very cordial with the protesters. There were pictures being taken of the police officers and the protesters together. So this is a lone individual who decided that he wanted to uh, seek out retribution for the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, and he decided to kill five police officers. It's horrific. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Right-wingers are saying, look, Black Lives Matter, they're violent. If you look at some of the videos, you can see them chanting, you know, violent rhetoric against the police. They're saying pigs in a blanket, fry like bacon. But those are isolated instances. By and large, Black Lives Matter is a peaceful movement. If you look at the actual Black Lives Matter website, they're nonviolent. They believe in a political change through nonviolent political means. And you can't condemn the entire organization for the isolated incidents of a couple of people who are not in the right, who are wrong, who are encouraging violence and cheering this on. Here's the thing, we can't generalize. Generalizations are not helpful, they do nothing. So you can't generalize that all Black Lives Matter activists are violent and want to harm police officers, but you also can't generalize and say that all police officers want to harm African-American citizens and Native American citizens, because that's also not true. Now, with that being said, you have to look at the statistics. We need to make sure that police officers are protected, that they don't have to feel afraid when they go to work, but at the same time, we have to make sure that African-American citizens aren't terrified every time they're pulled over by the police. You shouldn't fear for your life when a police officer comes up to your car for a routine traffic stop. I mean, they're here to protect and serve. So the fact that African-American and Native American citizens feel as though they're going to be executed every time they're pulled over, it's not acceptable. So statistically speaking, African Americans and Native Americans are disproportionately more likely to be killed by the police than white people. That's just a fact. And we have to look at that and we have to come up with solutions to reform our criminal justice system so that way this isn't the case. Now, furthermore, for every 1,000 people killed by the police, only one officer is convicted. And although police brutality is an issue in other countries, particularly against minority communities, Brazil is, is an example that comes to mind, the U.S. police, they kill citizens at 70 times the rate of other first world countries. So clearly there's a problem. Clearly some new training techniques are needed. Now, this has been going on for decades and, you know, the problem has gotten worse. And the fact that we haven't had criminal justice reform has kind of brought this issue to a boiling point. Now, every time I talk about police brutality, specifically with respect to the African-American community, what's the number one thing that conservatives will retort with? They'll say, what about black on black crime? Do you not care about that? Well, of course I care about that. You know, just like black on black crime is an issue, however, so is white on white crime. And when you say that, you're kind of dismissing the issue and saying, well, you know, maybe they need to stop black on black crime first. Look, here's the thing. So if you're a small government conservative, uh, then you should be absolutely terrified at the fact that the U.S. government and their employees, which are police officers, kill civilians at a higher rate than other first world countries. It's it's tyrannical. So there's something really unique to be said about police brutality against minority communities. Now, with that being said, it's also the case that we can't overgeneralize against police officers as well. Not all of them are bad. The overwhelming majority are, they're good. They actually do want to help and serve their communities. But the problem is that when you see these kinds of statistics, you can't help but internalize that as someone from the African-American community and think, maybe I'm going to be next. I don't know what the solution will be. All I know is that I don't want African-American people 
to be killed by the police so much. I don't want Native Americans to be killed by the police. I don't want them to be afraid every time they leave their house and are pulled over by the police. I want to stop that. But I also know that these police officers who were slaughtered in Dallas, they have families. They were there helping the protesters. They were making sure that everything remained peaceful and they were killed for no reason at all. So this doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. You don't have to pick a side. One team doesn't have to lose for the other to win. We're not on teams. We're all a member of the same species, the human race. Uh, and I know that's cliche and that's corny, but I'm a humanist, so I truly believe that. I want people to be peaceful. I don't, I, I, the violence is horrible. They have to get justice. The police officers who murdered these two African-American citizens in cold blood, yes, they murdered them. They have to be brought to justice. Now, second, we need criminal justice reform. We have to train police officers and sensitize them to communities that are disproportionately uh, African-American, Latino, and Native American. We have to understand that everyone has underlying racial biases. These police officers are no different. So we have to keep that in mind while we're training them and teach them to not act on that Uh on a split second when they're terrified and whatnot. So new training is in play, and I'll tell you why that's needed in a second. Uh, now we also need to ensure that the message is clear. Violence is never acceptable. If you're a police officer, it's not acceptable to kill an innocent civilian. If you are someone who's angry with the police, you have zero right to harm anyone or kill anyone. It's not acceptable. It's never acceptable. It's not going to be productive. It's counterproductive. Uh, and whatever message you had, you just destroyed it. So violence is never okay. I'm never going to be on the side of violence ever. Now, there are studies that illustrate how racial biases affect people in their decision making. So a 2000 study by Coral Park, Judd, and Wittenbrink in which they've conducted experiments to kind of test the prevalence of racial biases in shoot-no-shoot -shoot situations, uh, well, they found that reading about black criminals dramatically increased the participants' tendency to make a stereotypic pattern of errors shooting unarmed blacks, failing to shoot armed whites. That is, when information reinforces rather than undermine the stereotypic link between blacks and danger, bias in shoot-slash-don't-shoot errors increased. So you kind of see uh, the fact that African Americans are thugs reinforced in pop culture. You see it in movies, how they're gang members in movies, and how they're portrayed negatively. This actually does have a psychological impact. Now, they also found that exposure to stereotypical images of African Americans, such as them with weapons, increased their beliefs that blacks and danger are correlated. Now, cops are humans just like us, so they're not exempt from this type of bias. So we have to retrain them, but we also have to make sure that anyone who is advocating for violence against the cops because of the actions of a few of them, well, that they're condemned as well. So if you do see Black Lives Matter chanting, pigs in a blanket, fry like bacon, we have to condemn that. But we also have to condemn any generalizations and realize that that's just a few people. The overwhelming majority of Black Lives Matter protesters are peaceful. So if you are a small government conservative, then you should be flipping out at these cases of police brutality, uh, such as the Alton Sterling or Philando Castile one, because there's no bigger, more tyrannical government than one that kills its own citizens when they're innocent. So here's the thing. With that being said, we also have to realize that violence is never the answer. So when you see police brutality, the response is not to be more violent because more violence is only going to be counterproductive. So this one lone idiot that decided to kill police officers is wrong and we have to condemn that. But we also have to condemn the deaths of the people who were killed in cold blood, who were murdered. In the end, the divisiveness 
it's it's not good for the country. Anyone who is saying that you have to pick a side, they're wrong. Okay, you can be on the side of nonviolence. You can be on the side of peace uh, for everyone. And look, in the end, you know, it's it's just sad. I don't know what else to say about this. You know, I'm heartbroken. FBI Director James Comey testified before Congress about his recommendation to not indict Hillary Clinton. So overall, there were parts of the testimony that were perplexing, and then there were other parts that were just outright angering. So here's one portion of that. This is information that clearly anybody who had knowledge of, of security information would know that it would be classified. Um, but I'm having a little bit trouble to see how would you not then know that that was something that was inappropriate to do? Well, you're, I just want to take one of your assumptions about sophistication. I don't think that our investigation established that she was actually particularly sophisticated with respect to classified information and the levels and the treatment. And so far as we can Isn't tell... Isn't she, she an original classification authority, though? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. There were three documents that bore portion markings where you're obligated when something is classified to put a marking on that paragraph. Right. And there were three that bore C in parens, which means that's confidential classified information. So a reasonable person who has been a senator, a secretary of state, a first lady, wouldn't a reasonable person know that that was a classified marking as a secretary of state? Yeah. A reasonable person. That's all I'm asking. Yeah, before this investigation, I probably would have said, yes, I'm not so sure. I, I, I don't find it incredible. Director Comey, come on. I, I, I mean, I've only been here a few years, and I understand the importance of those markings. So you're, you're suggesting that a long length of time that she had no idea what a classified marking would be? That's your sworn testimony today? No, no, not, not that she would have no idea what a classified marking would be, but, but it's an interesting question as to whether she, this question about sophistication came up earlier, whether she was actually sophisticated enough to understand what a C in parens means. So you're saying this former Secretary of State is not sophisticated enough to understand a classified marking? No, that's not what that, I'm that's a huge statement. I know what I'm saying. You asked me, did, did I assume that someone would know? Probably before this investigation, I would have. I'm not so sure of that answer any longer. I think it's possible, possible, uh, that she didn't understand what a C meant in, when she saw it in the body of an email like that. Now, just to reiterate, James Comey stated that he did not believe Hillary Clinton was, quote, particularly sophisticated with respect to classified information and the different levels and how that information should be treated. Now, as Congressman Meadows pointed out, she was a first lady. She was a senator. She was secretary of state. And you're telling me that she wasn't sophisticated with classified information? She couldn't tell what markings indicated something was classified and what didn't? So, basically what he's saying is that, you know, Hillary Clinton, she's not too criminal to be president. She's just not sophisticated enough to be president. I'm sorry, but I don't buy it. Hillary Clinton is very sophisticated. I think she's a very calculated individual. I think she knew what she was doing. Now, getting to a different portion of the hearing, James Comey was asked to acknowledge whether or not Hillary Clinton lied to the public. Uh, and we all know that she did lie to the public, so this was kind of an easy question because James Comey, during his press briefing, he said that Hillary Clinton did send and or receive over 100 pieces of classified material. Uh, and she maintained that she did not do that. Take a look. Seven email chains concern matters that were classified at the top secret special access program at the time they were sent and received. Those chains involve Secretary Clinton both sending emails about those matters and receiving emails about those same matters. 
I did not send classified material, and I did not receive any material that was marked or designated classified. Now, with that in mind, since we know she lied to the public, here was James Comey's answer to that question. Did Hillary Clinton lie to the FBI? We have no basis to conclude she lied to the FBI. Did she lie to the public? That's a question I'm not qualified to answer. I can speak about what she said to the FBI. Did she, did Hillary Clinton lie under oath? To the, not to the FBI, not in a case we're working. Did you review the documents where Congressman Jim Jordan asked her specifically? And she said, quote, there was nothing marked classified on my emails, either sent or received, end quote. I don't remember reviewing that particular testimony. I'm aware of that being said, though. Did Hillary Clinton break the law? In connection with her use of the email server, my judgment is that she did not. Did you just not able to prosecute it, or did Hillary Clinton break the law? Well, I don't want to give an overly lawyerly answer. The question I always look at is, is there evidence that would establish beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody engaged in conduct that violated a, a criminal statute? And my judgment here is there is not. The FBI does background checks. If Hillary Clinton applied for the job at the FBI, would the FBI give Hillary Clinton a security clearance? I don't want to answer a hypothetical. The FBI has a robust uh, process in which we adjudicate the suitability of people for employment in the Bureau. Given the fact pattern you laid out less than 48 hours ago, would a person who had dealt with classified information like that, would that person be granted a security clearance at the FBI? It would be a very important consideration in a suitability determination. You're kind of making my point, Director. The point being, because I injected the word Hillary Clinton, you gave me a different answer. Unbelievable. Something that is so obvious, and he's denying it. He won't answer it. Uh, so he also maintained that he does not believe Hillary Clinton broke the law. So committee chairman Jason Chaffetz, who's a Republican from Utah, told Comey, we believe that you have set a precedent and it's a dangerous one. If your name isn't Clinton, if you're not part of the powerful elite, Lady Justice will act differently. It's a concern that Lady Justice will take off that blindfold and come to a different conclusion. Now, is he true in his assertion? Absolutely. And I'm glad that James Comey heard this because it needed to be said there are two sets of laws, one for the rich and one for the poor. And this case illustrates it more so than many others. Now, also, James Comey elaborated on why intent was so important. So according to The Hill, Comey noted that while a law exists passed in 1917 that allows for indictments to be handed down in cases of gross negligence, it's only been used once since then in an espionage case. No reasonable prosecutor would bring the second case in 100 years focused on gross negligence, Comey said. That's just the way it is. I know the Department of Justice. I know no reasonable prosecutor would bring this case. The legal standard of criminal intent, known as mens rea, prevented charges from being filed in the Clinton case, Comey told lawmakers. So the distinction really is razor thin between gross negligence and extreme carelessness. But when you set up a personal email server in your house, then you are intending to send and receive classified information if you will be conducting official State Department business on that email server. That's common sense. So if she would have known that what she was sending was classified, well then, you know, this would be a different story. She'd be indicted. Look, here's the thing. Uh, in other words, <laughs> this is what you do. Next time you commit a crime, you just say, well, I didn't know that was illegal. I didn't, I didn't have the intent to commit a crime, so I guess I'm innocent, right?
Actually, not gonna work on you. Don't try that because you're not Hillary Clinton. Now, here's where I disagree with James Comey, and I have two points to make. So, one, her and her lawyers deleted thousands of emails that they deemed, quote, work-related. So, there could have been an email in there that explicitly stated, here is a piece of classified information. I am sending this piece of classified information to you but we'd never know because she deleted it. So wouldn't it make sense to indict her to get to the bottom of it? Uh, and second of all, when you set up a private email server to conduct official State Department business, which you know will be classified material that you send and receive, it's just part of your job, that's intent. The intent is there. Now here's the most egregious part. There is direct evidence that Hillary Clinton instructed one of her advisors to send classified information through an insecure channel. So she instructed her foreign policy advisor, Jake Sullivan, who was having problems sending her information, that he should just remove the classified markings and send it insecure if the problem persisted. So not only does this email in particular prove intent, it proves that she knew about the classified markings. So in other words, she's guilty. There's evidence for it, but James Comey is allowing her to get away with it because her last name is Clinton. So that part of the story was the part that was just perplexing. Here's where we get into the downright angering portion. Hillary Clinton did not swear an oath to tell the truth before meeting with the FBI for three and a half hours last weekend, and the interview was not recorded, FBI Director James Comey told House lawmakers on Thursday. So let me ask you this. If this was anyone else besides Hillary Clinton, do you really think the FBI wouldn't swear them in under oath? Do you really think that they wouldn't record this meeting? And furthermore, the fact that this is Hillary Clinton, the fact that this case is so public, gives you even more reason to record it. Because the public deserves to know what was said in that interview. Now look, the fact that they didn't swear her in doesn't mean that she wouldn't be held liable in court for perjury. Uh, which we all know she probably committed as well. Uh, but, I mean, look, there's a public interest in this case. You have to record it. So the fact that you didn't is just angering. And he already came to the conclusion before uh, he started the investigation, probably. He had his mind made up. It's Hillary Clinton. I'm not going to touch this. I'm not crazy enough. Now, finally, the very last part that I want to share is how James Comey admitted that Hillary Clinton granted non-cleared people access to classified information, her attorneys. However... He couldn't prove that they actually read the classified material. Oh, come on, man. So, in other words, he's given Hillary Clinton the benefit of the doubt in every single circumstance here. There are multiple reasons to believe that she is guilty, and in every single case, well, we can't prove this, we can't prove that. Yeah, you can! You can prove that! If they were handling the classified information, then of course, they read it. If you set up the private email server, of course you have intent. It's just so frustrating. So look, if you ever wanted proof that we live in a two-tier justice system, this case is it right here because we have one set of rules that don't apply to the rich and the powerful. They only apply to the peasants. And all throughout this hearing, James Comey maintained that the FBI is apolitical. You know, they didn't treat Hillary Clinton any different. That's complete bullshit because you do not give the same standard to people. Look at Brian Nimashira. He's someone who I'll talk about in a little bit who did less than Hillary and he was prosecuted. So if you're a Clinton, you can get away with whatever you want. If you're rich and powerful, you can get away with any and everything. Any prosecutor will tell you that it's really easy to get an indictment. Uh, the, the famous saying is, you can indict a ham sandwich, it's so easy. Yet James Comey couldn't even utter the words, I recommend an indictment, even though the decision wasn't ultimately up to him. It was up to the Justice Department. He couldn't even recommend it in spite of all the evidence that we have that's publicly available. That shows you 
how corrupt our justice system is, how the rules and the laws don't apply to the rich and the powerful. It's frustrating. It's, it's just disgusting. Now, finally, a probe into Clinton's emails has been reopened by the State Department officially. Uh, although Hillary Clinton is not the only target, also her advisors are targets, such as Huma Abedin, uh, Jake Sullivan. But honestly, this probe is inconsequential because, well... The worst that can come out of this is administrative sanctions, so they can get their security clearance stripped. Her advisors can. So the worst that could happen is that can make it difficult for them to be advisors to Hillary Clinton if she does become president. So in the end, this new probe, it's not going to mean much. It's too late. Uh, and Hillary Clinton is going to get away with breaking the law uh, because, you know, she didn't intend to. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt, guys, even though she specifically knew setting up a private email server that she would be sending and receiving classified information because if she didn't, then that's just embarrassing. But we know that Hillary Clinton is not stupid. She's very intelligent. She's very smart. She's very calculating. So there you have it, guys. Uh, James Comey, it, you know, it's very clear now. I think this hearing was necessary and I think that it shed a lot of light on the case. Uh, He's too afraid to uh, recommend an indictment to Hillary Clinton because she's rich and powerful. So by now, we all know that FBI Director James Comey has decided to not recommend an indictment to the Justice Department in the Hillary Clinton email investigation. And furthermore, the Justice Department has confirmed that they will not, in fact, be indicting her. So what's missing there is intent. Since Hillary Clinton did not intend on distributing classified information, well then she is not guilty. But this isn't necessarily proof that Hillary Clinton is innocent, more so than it's proof that we live in a two-tier justice system where the rules and the laws apply only to the poor and they don't apply to the rich and the powerful. Case in point, in 2015, a naval reservist named Brian Nishimura also mishandled classified information. So according to the FBI, Nishimura had access to classified briefings and digital records that could only be retained and viewed on authorized government computers. Nishimura, however, caused the materials to be downloaded and stored on his personal unclassified electronic devices and storage media. He carried such classified materials on his unauthorized media when he traveled off base in Afghanistan and ultimately carried those materials back to the United States at the end of his deployment. In the United States, Nishimura continued to maintain the information on unclassified systems in unauthorized locations and copied the materials onto at least one additional unauthorized and unclassified system. Nishimura's actions came to light in early 2012 when he admitted to naval personnel that he had handled classified materials inappropriately. Nishimura later admitted that, following his statement to naval personnel, he destroyed a large quantity of classified materials he had maintained in his home. Despite that, when the Federal Bureau of Investigation searched Nishimura's home in May 2012, agents recovered numerous classified materials in digital and hard copy forms. The investigation did not reveal evidence that Nishimura intended to distribute classified information to unauthorized personnel. I'm going to read that last part again. The investigation did not reveal evidence that Nishimura intended to distribute classified information to unauthorized personnel. So there are many parallels here between this and the Hillary Clinton case. Was he extremely careless? Sure, you can say that. Uh, he destroyed a large quantity of classified materials, same like Hillary Clinton deleted thousands of emails. Uh, he also mishandled classified information by storing it on devices that weren't secure. Uh, and like Hillary Clinton, he did not intend to distribute 
classified information. So the question is, what happened to Brian Nishimura? Well, not only was it recommended that he be indicted, but he was indicted and he was prosecuted and charged. So he was put on probation for two years uh, and he was fined $7,500. So by not recommending an indictment of Hillary Clinton, this illustrates that, you know, guilt, it doesn't necessarily matter so much as your status does. Because if you are Hillary Clinton, you can mishandle information that's classified, that's fine. But if you're just a peasant, if you're a naval reservist, well, if you're extremely careless, then we're going to have to prosecute you. You're going to be put on probation for two years and fined. Again, we live in a two-tier justice system. Now, The Intercept explains, when it comes to low-level government employees with no power, the Obama administration has purposely prosecuted them as harshly as possible to the point of vindictiveness. It has notoriously prosecuted more individuals under the Espionage Act of 1917 for improperly handling classified information than all previous administrations administrations combined. NSA whistleblower Tom Drake, for instance, faced years in prison and ultimately had his career destroyed based on the Obama DOJ's claims that he mishandled classified information. It included information that was not formally classified at the time, but was retroactively decreed to be such. Less than two weeks ago, a naval reservist was convicted and sentenced for mishandling classified military materials, despite no evidence he intended to distribute them. Last year, a naval officer was convicted of mishandling classified information also in the absence of any intent to distribute it. Now additionally, Shamai Leibowitz was given 20 months in prison for sharing FBI documents to a blogger that he believed showed a violation of the law. Just last month, Petty Officer First Class Christian Saucier pled guilty to taking cell phone pictures inside a classified engine room on a nuclear sub, and while no public suggestion has been made that he ever planned to disclose the photos to anyone outside the Navy, he could face up to 30 years in prison, though the prosecution will likely pursue a shorter sentence. Now, this double standard is something that Hillary Clinton, like Obama, also applies to others, but not the rich and the powerful, and certainly not herself, because Hillary Clinton previously talked about the sanctity of protecting classified information. She said, I think that in an age where so much information is flying through cyberspace, we all have to be aware of the fact that some information, which is sensitive, which does affect the security of individuals and relationships, deserves to be protected, and we will continue to take necessary steps to do so. So here's the thing. I'm not talking about this because I believe we should have a witch hunt against Hillary Clinton. Sure, I disagree with her politically. Yes, I would rather have Bernie Sanders be the nominee. But this is really, really important. As Debbie Lasignan, the same progressive, said, this is bigger than Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. This is whether or not we're going to have two types of justice systems, one for the rich and one for the poor. And by not prosecuting Hillary Clinton, we are proving that we do, in fact hold richer people to a lower level of scrutiny, if any scrutiny at all, than poor people. So here's what we have to do. Either we will indict and prosecute people who mishandle classified information, or we're not going to do that. We can't have two different standards. We can't say, well, we'll apply the law to the poor, but not the rich. That's unacceptable. So since Hillary Clinton is not going to be indicted, we also have to uh, release and pardon anyone who was also guilty of mishandling or releasing classified information. So, since Hillary Clinton is getting away scot-free, then Chelsea Manning, uh, Edward Snowden, they all have to be given a pardon. Edward Snowden should be allowed to come back to the U.S., uh, and Chelsea Manning should be released from prison because even though they did have the intent, 
to release classified information. They were doing it to the benefit of the American public. It was a public good. They sacrificed their freedom and destroyed their careers and their lives for the public good. Hillary Clinton mishandled classified information because she wanted to skirt transparency and didn't want FOIA requests applying to her personal email server. So either we are going to lock up Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning and Hillary Clinton, or we're going to release all of them. But the point is that we can't have two tiers of justice. Either you're going to apply the laws to everyone equally, or you're not. According to the New York Times, Bernie Sanders is set to endorse Hillary Clinton very soon. So they explain, after three weeks of private preparations, Senator Bernie Sanders is expected to endorse Hillary Clinton on Tuesday at a campaign event in New Hampshire. According to three Democrats who have been involved in the planning, Mr. Sanders, in an interview Thursday with Bloomberg View's Al Hunt, came as close to endorsing Mrs. Clinton as he ever has, saying, we have got to do everything that we can to defeat Donald Trump and elect Hillary Clinton. I don't honestly know how we would survive four years of a Donald Trump as president. The endorsement was partly the result of daily talks between Mrs. Clinton's campaign manager, Robbie Mook, and the Sanders campaign manager, Jeff Weaver, about bringing together the two rivals and advancing the policy priorities of Mr. Sanders. Now, according to the article here, uh, if he endorsed Hillary Clinton, this would all but guarantee that he would be given a speaking spot at the convention in Philadelphia, but he finished in second place and he nearly beat a Clinton. So I think that he should be given a speaking spot regardless if he actually endorses her or not. But anyways, uh, here's where they get it wrong in the article, and I take some issues with what they say. So while some allies of Mr. Sanders worry that his endorsement will be too little too late, he still has some sway over the 12 million Americans who voted for him in the nominating contest. Mrs. Clinton is eager for party unity, especially since a sizable minority of Sanders supporters is resisting her, with some of them planning to hold events and demonstrations outside the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia there's obvious value to Mrs. Clinton in making peace with Mr. Sanders and having him in her camp. Now look, everyone knows I'm a huge Bernie Sanders supporter, but his endorsement will have no sway over my vote. I've made up my mind. I'm not voting for Hillary Clinton. I will be supporting Dr. Jill Stein because I agree with her politically and ideologically, so I'm supporting the candidate who I actually like. Now, I don't think that his uh, endorsement is going to sway many people because there's already Bernie Sanders supporters in uh, battleground states who are already planning to reluctantly vote for Hillary Clinton. So if you're going to vote for her or you're not going to vote for her, I think you've already decided. So this doesn't really mean much in the grand scheme of things. Uh, and furthermore, I would have liked him to threaten to endorse Jill Stein. I know that he would never do that, even though I would love for him to. But if he would have at least flexed and pretend that he would be endorsing Jill Stein, that would have given him all the leverage in the world. Uh, but, you know, Bernie Sanders is too nice. He said at the beginning that he would be supporting the Democratic nominee, and I believe him. I believe he's going to do that. Now, with that being said, I've preemptively received criticism from Hillary Clinton supporters and some Bernie Sanders supporters because I've been very critical of Elizabeth Warren once she endorsed Hillary Clinton, and they're expecting me to be pretty critical of Bernie Sanders and to abandon him and just throw him under the bus. But I'm not going to do that. This is a different story here. Bernie Sanders, do I expect he's going to endorse Clinton? Yeah, I think he probably will, uh, but I'm not going to hold that against him like I'll hold it against Elizabeth Warren. So Elizabeth Warren's endorsement of Hillary Clinton shows that she's a coward. Bernie Sanders' endorsement of Hillary Clinton doesn't show that about him. What's been going on for the past month are intense negotiations behind the scenes between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton's campaign. So he stipulated that an endorsement won't come unless Hillary Clinton and the party actually pledge to be representative of progressives. So he's endorsing her because he's using that as leverage 
leverage. So, for example, Hillary Clinton's new college-free tuition plan is the direct result of these negotiations. And furthermore, Bernie Sanders held out on endorsing her and actually took heat because of this from the entire party, and he even got booed because of it. So he actually stood up to Hillary Clinton and ran against her when many other Democrats were terrified to do so. But when it comes to Elizabeth Warren, here's why I'm disappointed with her. So she decided not to run for president presumably because she didn't want to go against Hillary Clinton. And also, she put her head down and avoided and ignored Bernie Sanders during his campaign when her endorsement could have actually given him a huge boost. And also, the minute the primaries were finished, Elizabeth Warren nearly tripped over herself to endorse Hillary Clinton. And not only that, she's actually stumped for Hillary Clinton when she didn't even do that for Bernie. So look, if Elizabeth Warren actually endorsed and campaigned for Bernie Sanders, but then in the end, she said, look, we lost, so we have to get behind Hillary Clinton to defeat Donald Trump. I would have no problem with that. I would have respect for her, actually. But she avoided Bernie Sanders like the plague. She barely mentioned that he was even running for president when she is much more aligned with him when it comes to uh, progressive values. Elizabeth Warren flocked to Hillary Clinton immediately because it was politically pragmatic and presumably because she wants a spot as her VP. I don't find that standing up for your progressive values. See, if Tulsi Gabbard and Jeff Merkley and Raul Grijalva, Keith Ellison, if they all come out and endorse Hillary Clinton, which I expect them to probably do since they're part of the same party, I have no problem with that. I'm not going to hold that against them because they actually came out for Bernie Sanders. They stumped for him. They endorsed him. They fought for progressive values. And so I don't see anything wrong with them now falling in line and supporting Hillary Clinton. That's fine. I'm not going to do that. But if you're a member of the party, that's fine. I'm not going to hold that against them. They fought for progressive values. But in the end, Bernie Sanders isn't the nominee Hillary Clinton is. So I don't fault them for endorsing Hillary Clinton. I fault Elizabeth Warren for endorsing Hillary Clinton because she ran away from her principles. She ran away from Bernie Sanders. And ultimately, she ran away from her constituents who wanted her to endorse Bernie Sanders. So that's why I hold it against Elizabeth Warren and why I wouldn't hold an endorsement of Hillary Clinton against Bernie Sanders. Now, I'm still going to be disappointed. Uh, I still would prefer that he endorsed Jill Stein. But in the end... You know, I can't hold it against him. That's his decision. He's remaining principled and doing what he said he would do. Now, I'd love for him to endorse Jill Stein because that would give her a monumental boost. But, again, it's Bernie Sanders. He's not going to go back on his word. Now, there's nuance to the world, of course. If he comes out and starts stumping for Hillary Clinton and starts claiming she's the most progressive candidate in the world, well, then I'm going to have to come out here and criticize him and fact check him and say, no, Bernie, that's actually wrong. Because for me, I'm consistent. I'm principled. I apply the same standard to everyone. So I'm not just unequivocally in favor of Bernie Sanders. I would abandon him if he decided to start being a conservative. And that's where I think Bernie Sanders supporters differ uh, from Hillary Clinton supporters. I think no matter what she proposes or does, they're going to support her. But that's not the case with me and Bernie Sanders. I'm in support of him so long as he remains consistent and progressive. But if he's going to say Hillary Clinton is a progressive and she's the best candidate ever, then I'm going to have to take issue with that. But I mean, I'm not going to fault him for endorsing Hillary Clinton. Is it disappointing? Yeah, it's really, really disappointing. I wanted him to be the nominee. I wanted her to be endorsing him. And the fact that that's not going to happen, it you know, it's heartbreaking. It really is. But I'm not going to hold it against him. I'm not, because he's doing what he said he would do um, before this was over, and he's just remaining principled. Uh, and I don't think anyone else should hold it against him either. But, you know, in the end, everyone has their own uh, reason to feel the way they feel. So that's my take. But, you know, anyone is free to disagree. 
So by now, I am super late to this party, uh, but I couldn't not talk about this. So House Democrats literally booed Bernie Sanders. So according to Politico, during his speech, he told them that winning elections isn't the only thing they should focus on. While they wanted to hear about how to beat Donald Trump and how Sanders might help them win the House back, he was talking about remaking the country. The goal isn't to win elections. The goal is to transform America. Sanders said at one point, according to multiple lawmakers and aides in the room, some Democrats booed Sanders for that line, which plays better on the campaign trail than in front of a room full of elected officials. Now, after being booed, he later flipped off House Democrats as he was leaving, and then he went on MSNBC the next day and talked about how he was afraid for his life. Oh, wait, actually, I think I'm getting him confused with Barbara Boxer. Anyways, so think about how outrageous this is. He got booed for saying that you actually have to represent the American people and you can't just keep thinking about yourselves. They don't like that. They don't want to hear about it. The thought that they even focus on anything other than themselves shows not only that they're narcissistic, but that they're not representing us. I mean, this is not a secret anymore, but this just proves it right there. They booed him. Hey, dumbasses, do you really want to win elections? I can tell you how. Maybe don't roll over and die next time uh, you redraw district lines and Republicans try to gerrymander. Maybe fight back a little bit. Maybe actually run campaigns that uh, appeal to the people and not your donors. Now, there were some members of the House that were supportive of Bernie Sanders' message overall, but many of them were disenchanted. And the question is, why were they angry? So rank-and-file House Democrats want the Vermont Independent to officially drop out of the race and throw his support behind the presumptive nominee, and they can't understand why he hasn't. It was frustrating because he's squandering the movement he built with a self-obsession that was totally on display, said a senior Democrat speaking on the condition of anonymity. House Democrats didn't seem very impressed with the unapologetic Sanders, who didn't yield an inch despite the rough handling he received. House Democrats, including John Garamendi of California and Joyce Beatty, of Ohio asked Sanders for specifics on when he would get behind Clinton, questions that were accompanied by some cheers and clapping from other House Democrats, sources inside the room said. That is what I call projection right there to the highest degree, and this is also a perfect example as to why I want to lead the Democratic Party. They just don't get it. They're out of touch. They don't want to represent the people. All they care about is themselves all they care about is bowing down to Hillary Clinton uh, because many of them were promised positions probably in her cabinet. Uh, so they want to further their own political career, and Bernie Sanders is getting in the way of that. So in sum, they all want Bernie Sanders to bow down, they want him to roll over, but you've given him no reason to do that. Why would he endorse Hillary Clinton? If anything, he should be endorsing Jill Stein, because everyone in the party has been nothing but rude to Bernie Sanders. On the Senate floor, uh, him and Kristen Gillibrand were having a reportedly heated debate or whatever, and she was really criticizing him because he's been wrong and bad to Hillary Clinton. Yeah, whatever. Okay, the Democratic Party is out of touch. They don't represent the people. They don't want to represent the people. And they hate Bernie Sanders because he wants to represent the people. This example right here just proves that they are like children. They are like petulant children who are throwing a tantrum because they're not getting what they want. So in conclusion, this just proves that they don't get it. There's a reason why Congress's approval rating is historically low. You can't blame that exclusively on Republican obstructionism. You can blame it on the Democrats as well, because both parties on the right and the far right don't represent any of their constituents. They're just off base. They're misaligned with voters politically and ideologically, and nothing is getting done. Uh, that's partly due to Republicans, but also, even if something were to get done, you'd have uh, Democrats compromise with Republicans who are extremists. So, 
you know, it's a lost cause. And the fact that they're putting their arrogance on full display, it's very, very telling, man. Dump Dems Day, July 29th. Third-party presidential candidates Gary Johnson and Jill Stein are teaming up to create a lawsuit against the Commission on Presidential Debates in hopes that they can sue them to get them to be included in future debates. Now, Newsy explains the Libertarian Party and the Green Party are actually suing the Commission on Presidential Debates for antitrust. It's a rigged game. It's really a rigged game, Libertarian presidential candidate Gary Johnson said. The lawsuit is a new tactic for the parties, but the fight to be included in the debates is not. So, if you don't know, getting into the debates is really difficult if you're a member of a third party, because in 2012, Jill Stein was actually arrested for protesting out side of a Barack Obama slash Mitt Romney debate and they took her away in handcuffs. Not kidding. And it's really difficult to qualify for a national debate if you are part of a third party because you have to poll at at least 15%. Now this is difficult for third party candidates particularly because they get zero media coverage at all. Now thankfully uh, CNN and Fox News are starting to have uh, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein on seldomly, but it's not enough, not to the level of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. So it's very, very difficult. Uh, but the question is why? Why is it so difficult? Well, the short answer is that Democrats and Republicans kind of teamed up to write the rules that would benefit them. So Newsy continues, in 1987, the Democratic and Republican parties created the Commission on Presidential Debates. And starting with the 2000 election, the commission made a rule that candidates have to get at least 15% in five national polls to be in the debate. The co-chairman of the CPD told The Hill that the requirement has held up to other lawsuits because it is objective and nonpartisan. but 15% in national polls is a pretty high benchmark for a third-party candidate. The last time a third-party candidate was in a televised presidential debate, it was Ross Perot in 1992. He finished with almost 19% of the vote. So the overall goal of the lawsuit is to make it so that way you can qualify for a debate so long as you appear on a certain number of ballots throughout the country which even though that's still pretty difficult, it's a lot more easier to get on the uh, debate stage and qualify than polling at 15%, especially if you have zero media coverage. Uh, so the problem is that now it's just the race against time. This lawsuit will probably not be settled before the national debates take place, so it's probably not going to do very much, but we can only hope that that's the case. Now, I've said this before, but I really want to reiterate it here because I think it's an important point to make. Uh, if you were worried about a spoiler for either side, now is not the time to worry about that because we now have a spoiler quote on both sides. We have two quote liberal candidates. I, I say that because I don't really think Hillary Clinton is liberal. And we have two quote conservative candidates. I say that again because Donald Trump isn't really conservative. He's more fascist. Now many people would worry if there was two liberal candidates because you would split the vote between those two candidates and then allow the conservative to get the plurality when in actuality more people voted for the liberal candidates overall but the conservative still wins since the liberals split their votes. But we don't have to worry about it because you're splitting votes equally on both sides. And if anything Gary Johnson is polling higher uh, and he'll probably take more votes away from Donald Trump. So if you're a liberal, you should certainly be in favor of allowing them uh, to appear at the national debates. But I mean, everyone should be in favor of this because it's only fair. People want more than two options. And when it comes to Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, I mean, come on, the lesser of two evils here is not even acceptable for so many people. So we have to allow 
Gary Johnson and Jill Stein to appear at the national debates because it's only fair. They get no media coverage, at least let them appear at the debates. So in short, I'm in favor of this 100%. Uh, now, you can also sign the petitions, one for the Green Party, one for the Libertarian Party, uh, to allow them to appear in national debates uh, that will be below in the description box. Check it out, sign it. Whatever we can do to help, I think is going to be really important at this point. Green Party presidential candidate Dr. Jill Stein appeared on Fox Business News and I'm pretty conflicted because on one hand, I actually want the mainstream media to actually start paying attention to third party candidates, but expectedly it's Fox, so they weren't too kind to her. But I think that Jill Stein actually held her own and the policies that she espoused being a very liberal Green Party candidate, well, I think it nearly made their heads explode. So take a look. Uh, there's a lot about that I want to talk about. So that sounds great. You know, helping millennials, getting out of debt in terms of uh, their college uh, debt. But how do you pay for that? Same way we paid for the bankers. We bailed out the guys on Wall Street right. who actually crashed the economy with their waste, fraud, and abuse. Um, and so how did we do that? So are talking about an $800 billion program? I mean, I, so again, how do you pay for it? Well, actually, you know, if you count the quantitative easing for the bankers, that was an additional $4.5 trillion, which is far more than what we need for student debt, which is about $1.3 So. You know, we did a well, quantitative, the quantitative easing. Though was from the Federal Reserve. So are you exactly. asking? Are you saying that the Federal Reserve should pay for this? Well, no, no, you don't pay for it. The Federal Reserve basically cancels the debt. It doesn't cost taxpayers one penny. And the reason it's good to do it for students is that it actually expands the economy. It's the stimulus package of our dreams to put to work a whole generation of young people that's held hostage in debt, that's working two or three part-time temporary low-wage jobs, not doing what their passion is, what their skills are, what they've been trained to do. So this is the stimulus package of our dreams, unlike the bailout for Wall Street, which just allowed more of the gambling as usual. So that didn't really uh, strengthen our economy. On the other hand, bailing out a generation that's been basically hung out to dry is exactly what we need to get our economy going again. Uh, Dr. Stein, you say that quantity of easing is the way that you would do this, but you know a lot of economists say that that drives up inflation, that it encourages debt, that, it's, uh, that it actually threatens the U.S. dollar, and countries typically use this when there's really no other option. You really think that the student debt crisis well, is to that level? That, what, that what they're saying, this? well, they're absolutely right when you're talking about bailing out banks who just essentially use that bailout to do more of that uh, gambling at taxpayers' expense. But they did pay but, the bailout back, Dr. Stein. The banks have paid back the U.S. government. Uh, yes, but, you know, took a while to do that. Right, well, but they, they paid, paid it back. back. Uh, wait, they paid back the... Um, uh, they paid back that $800 billion TARP plan. That's what they paid back. They didn't pay back the quantitative easing, which was simply a cancellation of the debt. But the and that is inflationary when you expand the money supply without creating more productivity in the economy. And actually, yeah. economists are pretty much in agreement that if you do that for student debt, that is the uh, stimulus package that our economy actually but needs. But Dr. Stein, you talk about these students as if they were hoodwinked. I mean, it's public knowledge what you're paying, what you're paying to go to college, and it's a personal choice and decision that you're going to pay 
a quarter of a million dollars to go get a degree that then you can't get a job. And that was exactly talk about It absolves That's people exactly of responsibility. Point. But well, again, again, whatever happened to individual responsibility me, in this country? Uh, excuse me. I, I would like to have a chance to answer. I yeah, think I'm here ahead, for an interview. Time. Thank you very much. Uh, that's exactly the point because young people were lured into these uh, loans with the promise that there would be jobs. But what happened in 2008? Wall Street crashed the economy, so they basically reneged on their end of the deal. So we have young people who are going to college with the expectation of jobs. But what kind of jobs have been created? There's no question the jobs that have come back are massively hmm. uh, jobs that are low-wage, part-time, and temporary. Actually, but we created why the, the gig economy. Why should the government be in the business of offering all of this free stuff? You know, as Dagan says, it, it, this is a personal <laughs> responsibility if you want to go to a certain well, college, have, if you, if you, the choices that you make. Why should the government be in the business of giving out college, health care, all of this free stuff. Is that your position on, on, on uh, the economy, government? Well, <laughs> it's not government. We as a society uh, are part of creating a world we can live in. Right now, young people have become the latest cash cow in a predatory economy. And what have they been deprived of? The ability to get an education, the ability to get a job, and the ability to have a climate in which they can live in the future. Right now, the science is telling us this is the latest study actually uh, meant, uh, announced by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, called the Oh My God study, which is that we can now expect as much as nine feet of sea level rise by 2050. So you have a generation that is up in arms. What is it that re-envisions our economy each generation? It has to be the young people. Well, but right Stein, now, they can't get jobs. They cannot afford education. This is not a world that works for all of us. No society has ever survived by devouring its younger generation. Well, so where but that you, is exactly what our economy is doing right now. Where are you on right regulation? Now. Because many businesses will argue that the reason that they're not hiring and adding more positions to the payroll is because Obamacare is killing them, because the regulatory environment is such... I agree. Yeah, uh, okay. We agree about Obamacare, because Obamacare was basically a boondoggle for insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. So there's a half a trillion dollars every year year that we are paying into paper pushing, into guaranteed uh, predatory profits for these industries. These are bills, you know, I live in the, in, the, in the state of Massachusetts. We used to call Obamacare Romneycare before it was Obamacare. It was essentially written behind closed doors by the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry. That's who's making out like bandits here. And taxpayers and businesses and everyday people are paying to the teeth for these stripped yeah. down, uh, uh, streamlined policies that don't actually cover you when you get sick. You may know I'm a medical doctor, in fact, so I know this well from the inside that we are not being adequately covered by our health care. So what we need is a Medicare for all system. Right now we pay a health care tax, but we don't call it a tax. Right, exactly. It's a death by a thousand cuts. So it's premiums, co-pays, and uh, insurance payments Dr. that Stein, are actually you, robbing us Before you us go, I just, wanted to, I, I just want to get a, a really encapsulate what, you, what your campaign is about, because you've got a lot of competition, obviously. Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders supporters are trying to get. What is your fix to create jobs and move the economy in terms of economic growth? 
Great. So, you know, I'm the one candidate that doesn't accept money and is not corrupted by lobbyists, is by, that create by jobs? corporations, and by super PACs. You know what I'm saying? I actually have the unique liberty to do what it is that the American people need. And the American people, actually, are clamoring for an emergency jobs program, which will also solve the emergency of climate change. We are calling for a Green New Deal, like the New Deal that got us out of the Great Depression. It not only revives the economy, it prevents catastrophic climate change, and it makes the wars for oil obsolete, which, mind you, is costing you 54% of our discretionary budget, which is half of your income tax right now, is going for these trillion dollar wars, which are making us more uh, endangered, not more safe. They'd create failed states, mass refugee migrations, and worse terrorist threats. Yet every American household is paying an average of $75,000 right. per household for mm. these outrageous wars, which are not making us more safe, they're making us less safe. Right. So by doing the right thing for the American people, because I'm not held hostage by anybody's large uh, campaign donations, right. I can actually provide the solutions that the American people need. So the first question that they asked her, as you probably could have guessed, was, well, how are you going to pay for all these policies? And CNN, MSNBC, not just Fox, they also asked this to Bernie Sanders as well. And this isn't an inherently dumb question. In fact, I think that it's legitimate. But the problem is it's never asked to the conservatives or the uh, conservative Democrats when it comes to other fiscally irresponsible policies, such as war. So case in point, we have drone wars in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia. That all comes at a cost. Uh, we are currently bombing ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Not cheap. We're currently occupying Afghanistan. Again, these all cost trillions of dollars. So why isn't the question ever posed to the conservatives and President Obama who want to maintain these wars? How do you pay for this? And furthermore, when it comes to uh, corporate subsidies and tax breaks for the rich, nobody asks Republicans and conservative Democrats how they're going to pay for this. But when it comes to helping out the people, well, you better have an explanation. How are you going to pay for this? Look, I don't have a problem with the question, but I just want you to ask it to everyone. How are you going to pay for your nonsensical wars? How are you going to pay for corporate welfare to the 1%? And I absolutely loved Jill Stein's response because she said, look, we're going to pay for my policies the same way we paid for the bank bailout. What she's just saying is we should treat the poor the same way we treat the rich. Uh, and she also described canceling student debt as the stimulus package of our dreams. And honestly, truer words have never been spoken because what many people don't realize is that if you increase the purchasing power of the poor, well, they're going to go out there and stimulate the economy and that will create jobs. But when you just give tax breaks to the rich, well, since they already have millions and sometimes billions of dollars, that money is just going to sit in their bank accounts. They're not going to reinvest that back into the economy because they already have so much uh, and you don't stimulate the economy that way. So if you actually put money in the hands of the poor, of the 99%, well, then that gets the economy going again. And if millennials didn't actually have to worry about so much student debt, we would be stimulating the economy. Believe me, we want to. I want to go buy a house. Many of us want to buy cars. We want to spend money, but we can't because we are crippled by student debt. So what Jill Stein is saying is simple. She's saying, let's treat everyone else the same way we're treating the bankers. But Fox News, you know, they couldn't comprehend it and made their heads explode. Now, uh, they bring up the personal responsibility argument. Of course, uh, they pivoted to basically every routine talking point that conservatives use against liberal policies. They say these students, you know, they weren't duped. They decided to go to college, take out the loans, whatever happened to individual responsibility. 
well, this is a really nice point to pivot to when you're losing the argument, but one, you want them to go to college. Are you implying you don't want people to go to school? Because if you have an educated populace, well, that's key. That's conducive to a growing economy. Uh, and second of all, if you don't go to school in this day and age, you almost can't get a job. You're almost required to go to school. Hence why Bernie Sanders proposed college-free tuition at public universities, because having a college degree is now like having a high school diploma uh, decades past. Now you basically have to go to college if you want to get a job. See, as someone with tons and tons of student loan debt, which I'll be paying back forever, look, I couldn't have gone to school unless I took out student loans. It would have been uh, impossible. But these idiotic Fox News hosts, they're sitting in their cozy studio uh, and they're making six, maybe seven figures a year, so they can't possibly empathize with us peasants. So they don't get it. They never will get it. Uh, and it's they just embarrass themselves. So finally, they pivoted to the why should the government be giving out all this free stuff talking point right out of their Republican talking point handbook. And this question, I just find it inherently stupid because by asking that question, you're implying that free stuff is bad, that the word free has negative connotations. I like free stuff. Do you not like free stuff? If somebody offers you a donut, are you going to say, how much is it? And if they say free, are you going to be like, oh, I actually like to pay for my stuff. So how about I'll give you 10 bucks for it? No, nobody's going to do that. You're an idiot if you think that. But the most important point that I can make about this is that this isn't free. Okay. This stuff comes out of our tax dollars. So by free stuff, we all like free stuff, giving your de definition of what's free. Do you like driving on those free paved roads? Do you like breathing in the free clean air? Do you like having drinking water that's clean? That all comes out of our tax dollars. But see, a large portion of the money that comes out of our paychecks before we even get to see it goes to the 1%. So all we're saying is that, look, I'm fine if you're going to take tax money from me. I don't care. But I just want it to come back to me. I want it to benefit the public. So the fact that she would even bring up the free stuff point, it's the same thing that Republicans say. Marco Rubio says it. John McCain says it. And it's just an intellectually dishonest point to make. Nothing is free. We pay for it with our tax dollars. Now, finally, uh, my favorite part is that Jill Stein said she's the one candidate not corrupted by corporate money. And the host said, is that going to create jobs? What? <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? See, at that point, they were so frazzled, realizing that they lost the argument, and Jill Stein just kind of <laughs> ran circles around them. They just were throwing out anything. It doesn't matter if it's coherent or not. They're just throwing out random shit. Uh, and that proves it. Is that going to create jobs? So, so you, you mean you have to have a candidate that's corrupt, that takes money from special interests in order to create jobs? What are you talking about? Uh, look, I mean, maybe there's some underlying uh, conservative implication that I'm missing here, but it just sounded completely idiotic to me. So in the end, I love this appearance, uh, and it just reinforced why I will be voting for Jill Stein. Uh, she, she's great. Hillary Clinton and her campaign are well aware of the fact that they have to reach out to millennial voters if they want to win in November. Now, previously, I've actually made fun of Hillary Clinton and her campaign because I think the strategy that they're employing uh, to get millennials to come on board is honestly, for the most part, it's laughable, but part of it is good. So on one hand, I think that uh, by going to college campuses, this is a good way to win over younger people on their own turf. But on the other hand, 
she's going to win over voters with, quote, her authenticity. And furthermore, when you use campaign surrogates like Katy Perry and Lena Dunham, it's just, <laughs> it's not going to work. And furthermore, if anything, you're going to push more young people away because it's just downright insulting. I've said that if she actually does want to win over some of Bernie Sanders supporters who are currently burning her bust, she's going to actually have to appeal to them with policy, not with these stupid pop singers and whatnot who don't know anything about politics and probably couldn't tell you the difference between a Democrat and a Republican. That's not going to work. But if you actually appeal to them with policy, then you could very well win over some of them, not all of them, but some of them. So with that being said, she will be adopting one of Bernie Sanders' key policies. So according to the New York Times, Hillary Clinton's campaign announced a proposal on Wednesday to eliminate tuition at in-state public colleges and universities for families with annual incomes up to $125,000, largely embracing a core position of Senator Bernie Sanders, who had pledged to make tuition at public institutions free for all students. Sanders praised her education proposal as a very bold initiative in a brief news conference in Washington on Wednesday, calling it a significant step for party unity. The final product is the work of both campaigns, he said, a clear sign of thawing relations between the two after a bitterly fought nominating contest. So when I initially heard that she would be adopting this plan, the first thing I thought was, you got to thank Bernie Sanders for this. This is the direct result of Bernie Sanders. And to anyone in the Democratic establishment who questioned why he wouldn't drop out, well, this is it. He needed the leverage. He wanted to make sure that before he went anywhere, he could hold that against Hillary Clinton and say, if you don't at least adopt something from my platform, I'm not going to drop out. I'm not going to endorse you. I'm not going anywhere. So I think that was really smart. And you honestly have Bernie Sanders to thank more so than Hillary Clinton for this. So, I mean, we have to give credit where credit is due. Now, how many people are actually going to believe her? and believe that she's going to follow through with this? How many people are actually going to believe that she personally wants, you know, tuition-free colleges? We all know that this is the result of negotiations between her and Bernie Sanders, and that she's only doing this because she wanted him to drop out. So although I think this is a good move by her, it's very, very smart, and I commend her for it, uh, I don't know that it's really going to have that big of an impact. Will some Bernie Sanders supporters switch over to her because of this? Yeah, but by and large... Her trustworthy problem is going to make it very difficult for millennials to accept anything that she puts forward because we have the internet. We can see that she's a serial liar. So do I personally believe that she's going to really fight for this? I don't. And again, I hate to be this guy because I can finally give Hillary Clinton credit on something because I hate being negative 100% of the time. And I actually like to give people credit and see the good side of people because I'm a humanist. But at the same time... It, you know, it may be too late for her. If she proposed this at the beginning of her campaign and made it the cornerstone of her campaign like Bernie Sanders did, it'd be a different story. Now, some more details about the plan is that Mrs. Clinton is also pledging to restore year-round Pell Grant funding, her campaign said, in hopes of aiding students seeking summer courses and will also require that students work 10 hours a week to help pay the cost of their college attendance. If adopted, her initiative would take shape over several years. The campaign said initially covering students whose families make 85000 in a year or less, uh, the threshold would increase by $10,000 a year until it reached $125,000 in 2021. So overall, I think that this is a solid plan. However, there are some points that I disagree with. Uh, I don't believe that college students should have to work to get Pell Grants because if you're a college student, you're already probably working. For me, I was working full-time as a college student during my undergrad, and it was really difficult to even finish homework. So the fact that they have to work 
is really difficult. And furthermore, we already have work study programs, so this doesn't really change that much. But the fact that she is going to make uh, Pell Grants available during the summer is a good thing because I am a student who heavily relied on Pell Grants. I also had to rely on uh, student loans, but I did qualify for Pell Grants that I was not able to get during the summer when I wanted to take classes during the summer. So this would have helped me. There is one other issue that I have with this plan. I don't like the $125,000 cap, and this is where she defers with Bernie. So Bernie says, you know, everyone can go to uh, college tuition-free if you go to a public university. Doesn't matter if you're Donald Trump's kids, doesn't matter if you're Hillary Clinton's grandkids. Now look, that doesn't mean that I don't philosophically agree with making uh, Pell Grants more available to people who make less than $125,000 per year. So the reason why I am in favor of just offering free college tuition uh, at public universities to everybody is because one, rich people are already going to send their kids to private institutions, not public institutions, so it won't really cost taxpayers anything more. But most importantly is that when you means test and you say you can qualify for this program if you make under a certain amount well then you kind of turn it into a welfare program right not so much this one uh because the cap is pretty high to hillary clinton's credit but you turn it into a welfare program and the richer people will say look only poor people get this this is costing taxpayers money i don't like it it's coming out of my pocket and i'm not going to benefit from it so when you means test for certain policies you really undermine public support for it and this is why i had a lot of problems with hillary clinton's social security plan because she said she wanted benefits to be more available for people who make less money. And again, I agree with that, but it undermines public support and it makes people who are conservative in Congress want to challenge it because their constituents who are more wealthy will be against it. So that's why I think that it should just be free college tuition for everybody because it just, in the long run, it's going to make the plan better uh, it'll make it stronger because people won't be against it. Now, here's what's the best part is that she's actually putting forth a concrete plan with details and she's not just using rhetoric. Now, does this mean I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton? No, it doesn't because I don't actually believe that she's going to fight for this. You have to applaud her for it. This is a good move, but I don't believe her and I'm still not going to vote for her because I like Jill Stein's plan a lot better. So I will be voting for Jill Stein. Uh, and furthermore, I mean, look, this wouldn't have even become a campaign uh, thing for her if it wasn't for Bernie Sanders. So because she, her arm was twisted, you know, into doing this, I can't believe that she's actually going to fight for it. I think I'm not alone here. So while I can give Hillary Clinton credit on one hand for actually being smart and trying to win over millennials with policy, I think it may be too little too late for her because people don't believe her. And we know that this isn't necessarily something that she came up with on her own. So in the end, you know, I have to give credit, but we have to be realistic about this, that it may not mean much in the end. Well, that's all I got for you guys. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. I also want to thank my subscribers and my Patreon patrons and all the members on humanistreport.com. And I also want to welcome all of my newest subscribers to the channel. Again, I apologize for having such a gloomy episode, but I, I couldn't ignore the topics that, you know, came up in this episode. And I feel like... I'm not the only one who feels this way, who just feels really uh, defeated by the events that transpired over the course of the week. Not just, you know, the the violence, but also the injustice with our, uh, our justice system that is a two-tier justice system that has separate laws for rich people and poor people. So, I mean, all of this was just so frustrating, and I'm hoping that for everyone who felt the same way that I did... Uh, who felt just really disgusted by all of this. Hopefully, you know, this was therapeutic, that we all came together and were able to discuss this, 
and you know just make it known that we all feel the same way uh so i will see you guys next week i'm hoping that the political news is going to be better next week and more cheery i don't know but you know either way we'll be here to talk about it so i'll see you guys then have a great day